This is Monocle on Design, a show where we explore everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's episode, we highlight some of the winners featured in this year's Monocle Design Awards. From Paris to Accra, we recognise some of the leading designers and brands across the globe. With 50 winners in total, it's an impossible task to fit them all into this episode, but we've handpicked some of our favourites to unpack in audio over the next 30 minutes. A year on from the successful launch of the Monocle Design Awards, we've reset, retooled and rigorously scoured the globe to highlight the industry's biggest successes this year. And so, on today's episode, to coincide with the release of Monocle's May issue, which features our Design Award winners, we're profiling a selection of our favourite projects. And joining me in the studio to discuss them is Monocle's executive editor and the driving force behind the awards, Nolan Giles. Nolan, welcome. I mean, I want to start by asking why we have our own awards in the first place. You're the man that kicked this all off. We have such a, I guess, unique view and a unique take on design. It's so broad, so... We talk about urbanism, how to make cities better, but we also talk about the perfect bar trolley that you might want to have in your house. And we decided that it was a good idea to kind of reward good design, but through the lens of Monocle. And that's why it's quite vast, the awards, Nick. So we have 50 in total, and we essentially spend a year figuring out what works, which is quite difficult because sometimes you have to hold back on a story when you see something really, really amazing. But at the same time, I think the award winners are pretty happy with the awards. Nick, maybe it's a good idea for you to kind of describe the emotions that you've heard from winners of these awards because we do provide them with a, a pretty beautiful trophy. I'll dive into the emotions in a second, but I think it's, like you said, important that people are recognised for doing good work, which is what we've always sort of championed here. Mm. It's, it's always been about quality. It's always been about designing things that are meant to last, that are also meant to serve people. So I think people maybe appreciate our perspective. Yep. So when they get that recognition, it, it does feel really nice to them. I was, I was speaking to Francis Kerry this morning, which we'll hear not on today's show, but on a, on a later <laughs> episode. That's a little teaser there. And he received one of our awards this year. And he talked about the whole studio coming together, crowding around the parcel with the award when it arrived, opening it up and and, and the joy of, I guess, unboxing it, uh, like on, on Christmas Day. Yeah, certainly people appreciate being recognised, but I also hope for our, our readers and our, and our listeners on today's show, it's also a chance to reflect on on what good design is. And, mm-hmm. and essentially today we're, we're going to unpack that with a selection of our favourite interviews that we've done over the course of, of choosing these 50 winners. I mean, it may be a nice place to start is with the award for the best social project, uh, which is the Anne Street Garden Villas by Anna O'Gorman Architects. This one is particularly close to your heart, I know. Close to <laughs> I know home. That. It's really close to home. It's, uh, it's on the Gold Coast where my family still live and where I kind of grew up. And I think we're both big appreciators of Australian architecture, particularly residential architecture. Australia has the kind of, well, it does have the largest average house size in the world, obviously because of the vast amount of space you can build upon. And they have these sprawling suburbs where people can buy these quarter acre blocks and put a big house on with a double garage and all this kind of thing, which does happen on the Gold Coast. But this project in particular was really interesting because it was a social housing project. You actually wrote the story, Nick, so you you have a little bit more kind of intelligence about the uh, story than I do. But I think it's particularly amazing because 
it kind of exemplifies everything that's good about building in Australia. There's lots of natural light. There's a very good use of materials. There's beautiful landscaping, but it's a social housing project. I'd love to hear kind of what Anna, the architect's view, was on the project. Absolutely. I mean, and we'll play a, a clip from her shortly, but I guess the big thing, like you, you said there, is these are sprawling suburbs. But what's kind of interesting is that typically public housing developments tend to still be drab towers in a desolate lawn and, and surrounded by a car park with very very little imagination yep. in their design. And what Anna has done with this project is give the residents a sense of place and a, a sense of self. They painted each dwelling a different colour to give them their own character. Each dwelling also has its own letterbox rather than like a big sort of communal one where everyone mm. has to go to. So there's a there's a privacy to it. There's each dwelling has its own entry and exit point and, and multiple entry and exit points so you're not always on, on show like you are in typical big public housing developments. Mm. And what I like most and what we'll hear from Anna is the fact that these weren't designed almost as public housing. They, yep. were, they were designed to be somewhere where you or, or I would want to live and I certainly would want to live, Me too. live in one of them. So let's, let's hear from Anna now. From the get-go when we started the project, that was our key vision was to make a place that didn't feel like social housing, but everyone would want to live there. And I think with social housing, rather than putting them in boxes with very bad lighting, I think we need to lift the people who are in those situations because they're often people like you and me who have just found themselves in a bad situation and need housing. It's important that we lift them up and give them good housing and pull them out rather than make the housing, you know, affect maybe their mood or how they're feeling. There's a role to play for design and for architecture in that. We can't solve it all, but I think there's an important role for design and architecture in social housing. We definitely need more of that. We did undertake a lot of research which informed our design and part of that research included visits to local exemplar projects but also visits to current social housing where things weren't working very well so it allowed us to take stock, talk to the current tenants, find out what was working, what wasn't working and that then informed the design. So one of the things that came out in the workshop was that people felt like they needed to have a choice about how they might enter or exit their residence. So we've all the ground floor units have a front and a back door. So one door opening onto the garden, but also a door that they can sneak out if they want to go to an appointment and they don't have time to talk to people in the garden. So there's things like that, just having choice that are really simple that don't necessarily cost more in the design. But also passive design is really key too. So providing good cross ventilation, access to natural light, you know, screening for shade, trees and vegetation in the garden to help with that cooling effect around the home we've pulled back the concrete and the pathways from the units in order to provide that layering of vegetation but also there are places for deep planting for big trees because they help with those you know providing shade and homes for wildlife too you know bird life 
That was Anna O'Gorman there, uh, winner of the Best Social Project for Anne Street Garden Villas. It's also important to note that that was a project that was commissioned by the Queensland State Government as a demonstration project for other public housing initiatives. So hopefully they can draw on on her work and, and build better public housing across the state and across Australia and who knows, even across the world. We'll be back with the award for Best Community Builder straight after this. So moving from our best social project to our best community builder, this is a project that was particularly close to my heart, Nolan Giles. Uh, it's awarded to Limbo Accra. Now, what's important to note is we've got uh, you know a great global spread in these awards, and that's partly to do with the fact that all our correspondents and writers and editors are pitching in with who they think is is worthy of, of winning one of them. This was one I pitched to you, uh, and I know you're completely on board with it, but Limbo Accra is run by Dominique Petit-Frere and Emile Grip, and I guess I guess they are designers that every one of their projects has a social leaning. There's mm. there's a ambition to make the communities that they live in better. They're based in Accra in Ghana and, and they've been really looking at addressing, I guess, shortcomings in, in the built environment there by activating desolate buildings. And they've sort of started to repurpose and retool some of these to show the potentials on the continent for building better and using space better. And that's translated from yeah initial art installations to even building Ghana's first public skate park. I mean, I don't know if you had any thoughts on this when it came across your desk of of what makes them particularly special. Well, I think more broadly, we've talked about two projects, a social housing project and and these incredible guys in Ghana that are really instigating change uh, through architecture and good design and good ideas. And this is one of the nice things about the Design Awards. We're not saying this is the best building in the world. We do have awards for our favourite architects and our favourite designers, but we're also kind of showcasing and unearthing really interesting people. And what's exciting is that, you know, maybe these guys, they win an award here for being the best community builder, but maybe in a few years' time we kind of revisit them and maybe they are, you know, the most interesting practice in Africa. We plant a lot of seeds, I think, with this in a really, really nice way. And I, I think, like, hopefully the, the amazing thing will be coming back and revisiting our awards in the future and saying, like, you know, we champion these emerging designers, emerging kind of exhibition, and now look at it now. And I think there's some really nice examples in that. For example, we've kind of awarded Alcova, which is a part of Salone del Moble, but it's really growing fast. And what they do is really beautiful. And they're really championing young design talent, interesting design talent, and giving a voice to them. And, you know, hopefully in five years' time, we can look back and everyone knows about Alcova and it's this amazing thing. And I think this is the strength of having people on the ground in many different parts of the world because they can showcase and tell us who they think is interesting. There's another brand that I'm obsessed with, not just because I want to buy their couches, which I do. They're called Part and Whole, and they're from Canada. And they're essentially rethinking the way that you can create a sofa unit and make it more modular and make it easy to bring into your house. And they're appealing to younger people. So there's just there's a lot of raw talent here that I think by giving them this award, we really empower them. And the, the Ghana guys are an amazing example of that. I mean, speaking of, let's hear from the team at Limbo Accra, a spatial design studio in Ghana's capital. Here's Dominique Petit-Frere and Emile Grip. We realised that there was kind of a gap within the built environment, largely due to the lack of public spaces or spaces just in general for youth and for creative expression and spaces that truly reflect, let's say, like a general (laughs) median salary, let's say, or a class class range, because a lot of the times that we see here in Accra, is that there's these kind of polarization within the built environment. You know, you either have the quote unquote informal 
sectors or the informal communities that have been built locally. And then you also have these high-end privatized condo, luxury real estate, and so forth. And in between that, you either have nothing or nothing left in the shape of an uncompleted building or uncompleted spaces or uncompleted property developments. And for us, we, we were very curious about that kind of in-between, that kind of polarization, and wanting to truly embody, activate, and investigate these spaces. I think initially we just wanted to really just put it to the forefront to showcase the world and showcase the communities there that, you know, that this is an opportunity to actually change how we perceive these these buildings and these environments in the city. So for us, it was it was quite straightforward in that sense. At first, it was really about like activating communities and opening up the perception of how do we perceive and how can we work within the public space, right? And as as Dominic said, like the public space is something that's quite under prioritized in a city like Accra and in many West African cities in general. And so we really wanted to to kind of use this idea of like uh, urban acupuncture mm-hmm. as, a, as a tool to activate people's awareness of their built environment in the urban setting. And so we're realizing that, you know, just the spatial intervention that we did with just occupying these uncompleted spaces are also leading us into spaces to which people are requesting or seeking our services in designing and creating public spaces, right? And we find ourselves practicing architecture on that front in the sense that it's our main criteria, right? We don't just pick up any built project, but if the project is rooted in legacy, if it's rooted in some form of public communal um, space or shared ownership with something that we adhere to, let's say. So you can find that in our most recent project with Freedom Skate Park um, and other developing projects that we have in the pipeline with um, creative entrepreneurs here who are either building a gallery or kitchen foundation, design academy, and so forth. And again, we are using the principles that we found in our investigation within these uncompleted spaces to tap into like, okay, how could that inform the design on certain projects that we're, that we're working on and carrying out? That was Dominique Petit-Frere and Emile Grip from Limbo Accra. And our final feature from this Design Awards special is on its way in just a moment. To round out, I guess, our selection for the show today, and again, to emphasize there are 50 winners um, and it's worth... Uh, can we plug the magazine here, Nolan? Yeah, big time. It's, Let's it's, do it. It's worth picking up a, a copy of the magazine to flick through them and, and, and see who, I guess, we think are, are doing outstanding work. We'll finish on the best wayfinding system. Now, I'm a little bit of a wayfinding wonk. I, I do love a good signage. It's, it's a passion of mine, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing worse than getting stuck in a big building or stuck in an airport or, or even lost in a city because because there's no quality signage. So I, th- I think it's incredibly important. Um, you selected this winner. It was Snowhetta's work for the Le Monde Group in France. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? There's certain factors that go into selecting these things. And one of them is kind of the instant appeal because we're putting this on page. We want our readers to kind of immediately understand and appreciate what we're doing. And then we tell the story a little bit more broadly. And I think what's so nice about this wayfinding system from Snowhetta is it's so distinct. So you look at it and you're like, you understand what it is. It's telling you where to go in a building, but it's so beautifully designed and it's so clever because it's uh, it's all kind of movable tiles that if changes do happen in the building, 
they can immediately adapt to that. It's a media company. Media, obviously, as we know, is evolving so quickly and changing a lot. They've created this super flexible wayfinding system and delivered it with such a high level of polish that it's immediately appealing, but there's a, a lot of depth to it. I mean, I'm interested to know your opinion, Nick. You're more of a wayfinding expert than, <laughs> than I am, but... What drew you to this award? Why do you think this is a worthy winner? I mean, polish is, is a great word that you've used there. Like you said, it's that modular system. So it's made from little poplar wood tiles that can essentially be moved around a steel frame as the use in the building might change. Obviously, the structure will stay the same, but, you know, an office might become a meeting room, so you need to update the signage to do that. Speaking to the team at Snow Hatter, there was a little bit of concern uh, that some of the tiles might be arranged to spell out rude words. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what that says about the Le Mans Group staff, but I have complete faith in them, and I don't think that will happen. Um, but I, I, I like, I guess, that, that modular element. But then I think there was another layer to it in terms of the idea is that it was meant to reflect the printing press, each of these mm. individual letters. So they come out of the poplar tile like, as if you were going to put them into a printing press and actually print a newspaper. So I like the fact that Schneheta have added that layer of depth to the work. So there's the, the, obviously the practicality of it, but then there's also this meaning that I guess sort of reflects the function of the building, added that layer of depth to the work. So there's the, the, obviously the practicality of it, but then there's also this meaning that I guess sort of reflects the function of the building. And we'll hear about that now from Hedda Leleng, Managing Director of Schneheta Design. In Snohata Design, we are lucky enough to be able to work together with our architects from the get-go, from when they start forming the space and setting the program of the space. So we can really implement the wayfinding and signage into the building itself and weave it into the full experience. And then you have so much more possibilities than just slapping something on a wall when everything is done. If you have a look at the Le Mans building and the facade, you could almost read the full facade as a layout of an editorial design. I mean, you, you can see all these facets in the facade and it's almost like reading a, a full text page. And this idea of referencing the editorial design of this building, which holds six newspapers. It is also reflected in the wayfinding signage. It's just taking it to another level of detail, I guess, and even referencing the history of the printing press even more and taking it down to every single letter being a historic reference to the printing press. We needed something that could be sustainable and something that could be modular and flexible and could be easily made and implemented into the building. And I mean, these building blocks, it makes this full system so flexible that you could write anything. I mean, you could, you could rearrange the spaces. That's one thing. But it also does this thing that was important to these media houses. I mean, they're really representatives of like the open press and democratizational power of the press. So really making something that could be influenced by the people inhabiting the building. We found it pretty interesting also to make something very analog to communicate in this very digital setting, in this very digital context. I mean, we could have made something screen-based or something more into the tech realm of visual language, but we really also wanted just to make it the opposite, to comment that very digital context. I think it enriches the experience also. It's very tactile in its design. 
That was Heather Lelang, Managing Director of Snow Hatter Design there. I mean, Nolan, have you got any parting thoughts? There are three picks for the show today. Again, maybe we could pitch the magazine here or maybe not. Is, is there a big takeaway that, that comes from all these 50 winners? Is there a golden thread perhaps or, or am I just putting you on the spot and putting you in a bit of trouble? No, I think actually Snow Hatter could be a bit of a thread and I feel like they're probably going to be repeat winners in Monocle Design Awards. I'm not forecasting the future, but I think what they do is so incredible in the way that they look at design from so many different angles. So we can talk about this wayfinding project within a building that they've designed that's also kind of improving a part of Paris through good urbanism. So they're looking at the micro and the macro. And I think that's kind of summarizes what we do. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the, the beautiful pages of the magazine, which is out on newsstands now. I'm seeing this techno gym bench. I picked this one because it's just this incredible piece of super functional design that's relevant to the times where we live in. We live in small apartments. You know, the pandemic has forced us to rethink fitness in the home. They've developed a product that is specifically catered to that need. And I think all of these winners all catered to a need within our lives, within society. So had to do that particularly well. But going forward, there's going to be too much to sift through, I think, as we come out of the pandemic. It's super interesting. But I would also say to listeners, like, send some emails over. A lot of these have come because people want to be involved in the design awards. They come to us and say, you know, these are super exciting projects that we're really proud of. Let us tell our story. And we kind of go through that. So I would advise any architects and designers, as long as the project is new and it's post-April 2022, we will consider it for our 2023 Design Awards, which you're very excited about working on already. I'm Absolutely. Guessing. So, I mean, the, the gauntlet has been thrown down. <laughs> Nolan Giles, thank you very much for joining us. To round out today's show, we're going to hear from Monocle's Architect of the Year, Dorte Mandra. She was selected as winner of this gong for a host of different reasons, from her care for the people using her structures to an appreciation of local materials and building methods, as well as her ability to seamlessly and sensitively integrate buildings into a host of different contexts, we feel that she embodies what a great contemporary architect should be. To talk about her work and approach more, Mandrup joined me down the line. So this is going to be a very broad question to start, but I want to ask about, you know, the key ingredients needed as a foundation for making good architecture. What's what's your personal approach? Our approach is very much to address a context and to to try to understand the potential of a place. So so I think place making is in a way key, not not to blend in necessarily with what what's there, but to try to understand what are the 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 social content, what is the economic context, and what is the larger urban. If it's if you're in an urban space, if you're a landscape, what is the larger context in the landscape and in the history or in there there are many parameters that you need to understand. So what we we do usually is we spend an awful lot of time trying to understand the broader context. So we we do research or we collect data, you could say, around a subject. I mean, so there's the economic context and the social context and the landscape context where this work is taking place. Can you tell us about a particular project of yours where you sort of put this analysis or of, of these components into practice, just so I guess I can understand how it's permeated or, or influenced your work? Well, I think when we've been working with the Icefjord Centre in, in Greenland, we worked together with experts that were knowledgeable about the Greenlandic context. And so it's also about you know, working in teams with people that are not necessarily architects, but that has knowledge that you, you want to put into your project. So, 
So in Greenland, we worked in a team also with a geologist who's half Greenlandic and also very knowledgeable about Greenland. So so working and trying to understand the, the broader context of Greenland, which is, of course, both a social, but it's also knowing that Greenland is the oldest bedrock in the world. And, and, and in a way, you have to address the issue of, of time when you when you do a building. And to get our listeners up to speed, Dorte, we're, we're talking about the Icefjord Centre, which is located 250 kilometres north of the Arctic Circle in Greenland, and it's a cultural centre of sorts that functions as a hub for research and education and exhibitions. And you talk there about addressing geology and time, and I guess, you know, pardon the pun, using that as a bedrock for the project. But I'm curious what other elements you, you pulled into this project in Greenland. In Greenland, we um, we worked, of course, also with understanding the climate. How how does snow drift? Uh, how does it work with the wind in this climate? Because it's really a very extreme climate. So in a way, working with the shape of the building in relationship to the climate, to the snow drift, to the meltwater, and of course, understanding that building in Greenland, you don't have any building materials. You have to ship everything there and you don't have large machinery. So the whole thinking around the building was to be able to create it somewhere else, prefab, and to ship it and to be able to build it in that uh, very small window that you have in the summertime where there's no snow and where the ice doesn't close the waters so you can actually ship material out there in May, June, July. So that kind of planning is, of course, a large part of how to shape the building. So creating these frames that you could pack in containers, which means that the members doesn't have to be large members. You can't work with concrete, prefab concrete, which would also be very unsustainable to do. So working with these quite small frames to be able to pack them in containers and to be able to mount them as quickly as possible on site was an important part of the design of the building. I mean, that sounds like a challenging construction process. I'm, I'm curious as well about the design. For me, it feels like the building just blends into the landscape. Was that intentional? And if so, why do that? It was important to us to create a building that had a potential of being a part of the landscape, for one part, but also to be creating almost like an, a landscape icon, you could say, by creating this hill or part of the path of the UNESCO Heritage Trail, we actually created sort of a landscape beacon, you could say, where you where you move up on the roof and, and from the top of the roof, you're able to overview the vast area that you're moving into if you're going on a hike. And I think what is the, the, the great success of that building is actually that the local community has absolutely embraced that thought and they use it as part of the path every day, but also they, they have their marriages on top of that roof. So... So that is part of, I guess, a way of looking at social sustainability is also to ensure that your building has a positive impact on the local community. And I guess just finally, I mean, we've used this Greenland project for the basis of a lot of this conversation, but are there lessons here or are are there lessons in Greenland that can be applied to other projects? And, you know, I I guess I want to know how your approach changes from project to project. Is, Is the best construction method in Greenland the best construction method elsewhere or is the most sustainable material choice in Greenland the most sustainable material choice elsewhere? Those sorts of things. I think depending on where you are, um, also if, you, if you're talking about materials, it's not always the same materials that is the most sustainable materials. I mean, when, when we worked with the Wadden Sea Center in Ribe, Denmark, on the Wadden Sea coast, one of the, materi- oh, the, the main material we've been using is reeds because it's part of the history of the area. It's been used since the Vikings were there and it's also harvested very close by so you don't have 
you know, transportation. It wouldn't be sustainable if you bought the reeds somewhere in Poland or somewhere else. So it really has to do, I guess, there's a lot of knowledge you can gain from understanding the tradition of building or the, the local sort of heritage, not in a sentimental way, but in, in understanding why does buildings look like this in this area. And, and if you look at the Ribe area, it's very, very flat. Uh, it's very horizontal. The wind is very, it's, it's always present. So in a way, trying to understand that it, it creating a, a, an interior outdoor space is important, but because otherwise it's, it's quite difficult to actually be outside a lot of the year, you could say. So so there's this kind of relationship to, of course, a tradition, as I said, in a, in a non-sentimental way, trying to understand what is the building culture and why, uh, especially why. And then you, you need to interpret that, I think, in a modern way, because I'm not interested in tradition for tradition's sake, but I'm interested in why things look like they do. And that's all for today's show. Do pick up a copy of Monocle's May issue, which features all 50 winners of our design awards. The magazine is on all good newsstands now. And, of course, for more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra. That airs on Thursdays. Today's episode was produced by Charlie Filmer Court and May Lee Evans and edited by Jack Jewers. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening. <laughs>